Timothy 2, we're reading through a series of sermons on the book of 1 Timothy. Today we're looking at the first eight verses of chapter 2. This is a reading of God's word. First of all, then I urge supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He desires everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we ask that now as we hear your words that you would teach us what it means to be a person and a church of prayer. Submit this time to you. Pray that your spirit will work in the hearts of people as we come before your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you just joined us, we're right in the middle of a series of sermons. We're looking at the book of 1 Timothy, and we're looking at this theme of God's house. What is God's house about? What is God's church about? And today we're looking at this idea of being a praying church. I grew up in the Korean church, and one of my uh, memories is being an eight-year-old boy, I think it was around eight, and going, and my parents would take me to a Korean language service, and I didn't even speak Korean at all. And I would have to be an eight-year-old boy sitting, fidgeting, listening to this sermon in the service of a language I didn't even speak. And the worst part of that service would be when the pastor would pray. I don't know if you know Korean pastors, but when they pray, it's like the longest prayer. Like past Korean pastors, they pray about Moses and Exodus and Leviticus and Jeremiah. They're preaching about Revelation and the end times. This is a prayer, and it's forever. And I remember thinking, man, when is this prayer going to end? This is like a long, crazy prayer. I don't know what he is talking about. And uh, prayer for me was not a very ritualistic thing growing up. It was very long. It was very dry. Uh, and I didn't really understand it. And sometimes if we're honest, prayer can feel like that for us even right now maybe. Prayer can feel like a ritual. It can feel like you've memorized certain prayers and you just pray these same prayers again and again. But, you know, when you look at the Bible, what the Bible has to say about prayer, prayer in the Bible is always alive. Love this picture in First Kings, this picture of Elijah in a severe drought, praying to God, lifting up his hands in prayer, and the heavens parting, and rain pouring down. Uh, James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, that there's power in prayer. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says the church is a house of prayer. That's what the church is about. It's a house where prayer goes up for all the nations, where people from every different parts of the city come to church to pray. This is what the church is about. So today as we look at this idea of prayer in the church, I want to look at three things. Posed as three different questions. The first is, how should I pray? Secondly, who should I pray for? Thirdly, why is prayer powerful? Those three things, three points as questions. And the first thing is, uh, how should I pray? We've been looking at the book of 1 Timothy. It's written by 
the great missionary apostle Paul, he writes to his protege, his protege Timothy, young minister. And Paul is teaching Timothy about how to lead the church. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, this is what Paul says. He says, first of all, then I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Paul says, first of all, another way to say that is of first importance. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is, this is the most important thing to start off with about the church. Timothy, focus on this, prayer. He says, of first importance, the most important thing, he says, is prayer. Prayer is, in many ways, the most important thing for any church and in many ways for any individual. So how do we pray? What is prayer about? And the first thing that Paul focuses on is the variety of prayer. We should pray in a variety of different ways. That's why what Paul says in this first verse, he uses different words to describe what prayer is. And every word, he uses four terms, describes a different aspect of a type of prayer that you can pray. The first term he uses is the word supplication. That's a word for making a request to God. That could be a prayer about yourself, your health, about your job, about your family, about your future, about your spiritual progress or your lack thereof. Uh, We are to lift whatever is on our hearts we have to give it to God. And uh, that's called supplication. Secondly, he uses the general word prayer. Prayer is a general term, and that idea is to give God and to lift or request up to God. Paul is saying, uh, lift whatever is on your mind and your heart and lift those things up to God in prayer. Prayer is basically speaking to God. Prayer is giving God whatever is on our mind and our heart and lifting that up to the presence of our king. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Third word that he uses is the word intercession. Intercession is a word used to, to intercede means not about praying for yourself, but intercession is about praying for someone else. Praying for someone you love. It can be a family member, a friend, a neighbor. Intercession is a picture of someone coming before a king and pleading to a king on behalf of someone else. Uh, Prayer is not just for ourselves, but we are to pray on behalf of other people. The last term, thanksgiving. Uh, Paul says, with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is this idea of not are we only to pray for things, But we are also in prayer to be thankful, to have worship, to have gratitude. We thank God for all his blessings which are ours in Christ Jesus. We thank God for things in the past that he has done, also in the future for things he has yet to do, but we believe him for. And all of these terms describe a rich variety of prayers that we are to pray a variety of prayers. Right in the middle of the Bible, there's a book called the Psalms. The Psalms, there are 150 different kinds of Psalms, and they're all different kinds of prayers. Some are confession. Some are thanksgiving. Some are hymns of praise. Some are laments. And the Bible teaches us that we are always to have a rich variety of prayer prayers in our life. Sometimes in our prayer life, we get stuck because we're praying the same prayer all the time. We've memorized, we have certain routines, and we get stuck because we're repeating the same things. 
But Paul says, use a variety of prayers. Pray according to the season of your life. Pray not just for yourself, but pray for other people. Lift up not just petitions, but thanksgivings. That our prayers should have this rich variety. Secondly, what Paul says about prayer is that we are to have the right posture in prayer. So in 1 Timothy 2.8, he says, I desire then in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul says to lift up your hands in prayer. Now, he could literally mean we should all lift up our hands in prayer, uh, or that could be something more metaphorical. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the terms used to describe people is that they lifted up their eyes to God. And one of the ideas of lifting up our hands to God is more a matter of the heart. That when we lift up our hands to God, we're acknowledging that it's not our hands, but God's hands. It's not our power and our strength, but God's power, God's strength. The idea of lifting up our hands to God in prayer is contrasted in that same verse in verse 8, without anger or quarreling. When we lift up our hands to God in prayer, we lay down uh, the arguments, the anger that we have with other people, and we lift up those things to God in prayer. Uh, the attitude of prayer when we come to God in prayer is humility. The attitude of prayer is that we lay down our own plans, our own agendas, uh, doing things in our own strength, and saying, God, it's all you. It's your plan. It's your power. It's your glory. That's the attitude that we bring to God in prayer. And the final thing is this, is that we pray in community. Uh, Paul uses that word, uh, he wants every man, plural, and he uses that word in the context of worship. And the idea there is that we are not only to pray as individuals, but we're to pray as a church. We're to pray as community. We should all be lifting up our voices to God. You know, if you're new to prayer, if you're new to Christianity, one thing I encourage you to do is pray with other people. One of the great ways to learn about prayer is to learn prayer by praying with other people. I love to listen to people praying because I realize everyone has a different, every Christian has a different way to pray. Some Christians pray very intimately. They experience God and they pray to God in a very intimate, personal way. Other people pray, other Christians pray very boldly. They pray as sons, as daughters of the king, and they pray with great boldness to come before the throne. Some Christians, they pray very humbly, very gently. They pray as servants. They pray humbly, asking God for help. You know, it's beautiful when the church prays because you have a variety of different people from different places, different perspectives, and they're all lifting up their voices together in prayer. You know, that's what makes prayer in the church so beautiful. In our church, what we're trying to do in our worship service is saturate our service with prayers. So there's prayers of the people in which we name individuals and bring them before God so that our whole church can be praying for them. We have prayers of confession uh, before we hear the sermon in which we bring all of the weight of our sins before God to be forgiven. And our hope is, and we have a prayer of reflection right after the sermon, that we reflect on that sermon. My hope is after the service is over, people would be praying for each other by name, holding hands, lifting each other up in prayer. That's what the church should be about. It's a, it's a place, it's a house. It's a house of prayer. 
Paul encourages us, telling us how to pray. But second, this is the second thing. He tells us who to pray for. He tells us who to pray for. Uh, Paul says we should lift up all kinds of prayer, but for who? In verse 1, he says, for all people. Paul says, lift up all those different aspects, this variety of prayers. He says, pray for all people. What does he mean by that? Does he mean pray for every single person? Because that would be impossible. But the all people here, in the context of this book, has the idea of all kinds of people. You know, what's amazing about the journey of the gospel is that God is always reaching not just one people, but all people. We're going to get to that at the very end. It's for all people, all nations. In the book of Acts, the book of Acts ends with, begins with Jesus ascending to heaven. And he sends out the church. And he says to the church, you're going to be my witnesses, not just here, but to Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. So the whole book of Acts is the gospel traveling. It's going. It's not just for Israel. It's for all the nations. It's not just for all the nations. It's for all different kinds of classes and people. So in Acts, we see the gospel transcending gender barriers. In Acts chapter, uh, Acts, Acts 16, the gospel comes to a wealthy woman named Lydia. Uh, she's wealthy. She's a woman. She's a businesswoman selling all kinds of expensive garments, and she comes to faith in the gospel. We see the gospel coming to very broken people on the edges of society, lepers, people who, were, uh, who had disabilities, God bringing them into the kingdom. I love this example in Acts 8. There is a man who is the Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian eunuch. He was a black African man. Uh, he was a eunuch. In today's term, he would be without gender, Uh, He was also a diplomat of a great African nation called Nubia. That's one of the great African nations in history. Uh, And he is a wealthy, uh, accomplished African man. And it breaks every stereotype we have today of a black African man. And the gospel comes to him because he's curious. He's reading on his own the book of Isaiah. And he's wondering who Isaiah is talking about. And Philip the evangelist rose up to him, literally rose up to him while he was on a chariot, and he explains to him that Isaiah is talking about Jesus. That's what this whole thing is about. And this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, becomes a Christian. He gets baptized immediately. And that whole example is this idea of the gospel transcending barriers. And it's not just for one type of person. It transcends every barrier of race, of class, of gender, The gospel is powerful. And therefore, Paul says, pray for all kinds of people. Pray for everyone in your life, regardless of where they're from. Different classes of races, uh, your co-workers, your family, and pray that they would come to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus. Pray for all people. But specifically, Paul names leaders. This is what he says in verse 2. He says all people, and then he he narrows it in verse 2. He says, especially for kings, all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul says, specifically pray for kings, those who are in authority. In the first century, Paul is writing in time of Roman rule, uh, in which Rome more or less was hostile to Christians. In fact, Paul himself would be imprisoned in a Roman jail, He would later be executed. 
after the, the Bible was written late in the first century, the Emperor Nero would persecute Christians by throwing them to the dogs, lighting them on fire as human torches. But in spite of all that, Paul says, pray for your kings. Pray for everyone who is in authority. You know, in our time now, we would say the application is pray for your leaders. Pray for the president. Pray for the governor. Pray for the mayor of Los Angeles. Pray for all of those individuals by name. Many Christians, we don't like to pray for our political leaders. Uh, that's not a habit of a lot of people. And I would, I would suggest a couple of reasons for that. One of the reasons we might not like to pray for our, our political leaders is that we don't agree with them. You know, we don't agree with their policies. We don't agree with who they are or what they're doing. And I would say to that, if you don't agree with them, isn't that a, more of a reason to pray for them? You know, if you disagree with them, their policies, their ethics, all the more we should be praying for them. They need God's prayer all the more. We should be lifting up our president or senator uh, our governor, our mayor, and we should be, Lord, give them wisdom. Help them to have enact policies that are just. Uh, give them grace. Help them to lead in a loving way, a just way. We should be lifting them all up in prayer. Secondly, some people might not to, like to pray for our political leaders because we've separated uh, politics from spirituality. And there is a danger of conflating those two things. They are not the same thing. But there's also an equal and opposite danger of separating those two wholly. And we separated them in our mind and in our spirituality. But what is the relationship between those two things? Uh, well, First Timothy 2 tells us that. Paul gives a reason why we should pray for kings and all who are authority. It says this at the end of verse 2. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. Uh, one of the greatest theologians of all time, his name was Augustine. He says there are two cities. There's a city of God and there's a city of man. One is eternal. The other, the city of man, every great empire. And Augustine goes through history. And he says every great empire has risen and fallen. It's temporary. Every great empire has fallen. It rose through history to this time. Uh, and he says there's, we have to distinguish between the city of God and the city of man. But the city of man is still important nonetheless. And one of the ideas behind that is that the city of man gives us the context, the backdrop for the city of God to happen. Uh, Paul says, pray for your leaders so that we may live, live a godly and quiet life. I know it's difficult to follow God if everything in your city is chaotic. It's difficult to pray when you're worried about your safety. It's difficult to seek God when everything around you is falling apart. Uh, the city of man, our city, is not the ultimate thing. Our country is not the most, the most important thing. But it's an important thing because it's the backdrop, it's the context for people to seek the most important thing, which is God himself, which is God's kingdom. And we are to continuously pray uh, for our political realm, for our leaders, uh, not just our political leaders, but secondly, for our spiritual leaders. We just heard the testimony of uh, John Gim. Um, last week we heard the testimony of John Chang. And we are in the process of discernment 
and electing our leaders. And I would urge you this, this month to lift up those men to God. Lift up myself as a pastor, as your pastor. Uh, we need your help. We need your God to give us wisdom and strength to lead this church. Uh, Paul says, who should we pray for? He says, lift up your leaders. Lift up an- anyone who is legitimately in authority. Lift those people up to God. Uh, but here's the final thing. One of the final things is uh, the power of prayer. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us don't pray because we don't think it's effective. You know, we don't think it's a powerful thing. Uh, we might not believe that God is listening to us. And Paul anticipates that idea that we might not believe in the power of prayer. You know, if you have a friend who is stingy, who is very self-centered, you're probably not going to ask them for a lot of favors because you know what the answer is going to be. Uh, but if you had a friend who was wealthy, who was also generous, who was also filled up with compassion, you probably go to that person a lot, especially if you knew that they would hear you. Uh, Paul anticipates that idea, and he realizes and he gives us an incentive to pursue God in prayer by talking about the heart of God. This is what he says in verse 3. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Paul encourages us to pray by talking about the heart of God. He says, this is God's heart. God wants all people to come to a saving knowledge of him. The God's heart is so large. He wants not just a select few, but all people. And he wants them to come to this knowledge of God. That's God's heart. And he goes on to say there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator is a go-between. A mediator comes in between. That we have, we were enemies of God. We had a debt that we owe God. But Jesus is our mediator. He has come to pay that debt for us. He was the ransom. He paid the ransom's price with his own life so that he could bring us to God, the Father. You know, I was, um, John was talking about his uh, time in Cambodia. I spent a lot of time overseas, especially on short trips. And uh, I remember I was in Paraguay uh, on a trip there, and I was going door-to-door with a Paraguayan native. And we're just visiting houses, telling them about a dental clinic that we're putting on, encourage them to come out to that. And uh, I knocked on the door of this very young Paraguayan woman. She invited us to her house. She was happy to see us. And as I got into the house, uh, this house was like wall-to-wall pictures of Mary, like shrines, candles, images, pictures of Mary, pictures of saints, and I had, I'm a pastor. I had to ask her about that. <laughs> like, what's going on with these pictures? Like, why do you have so many pictures of Mary here? Uh, and she explained to me through a translator that Jesus seems so far, God seems so far away. Mary seems a lot closer to me. And she, her logic is, I pray to Mary, and Mary prays to Jesus. Uh, in her, in, not in her words, but uh, her logic is that. Jesus is a mama's boy. She didn't say that, but that's kind of the logic. That, hey, if you ask Mary for something, 
And Mary asked Jesus, Jesus is going to do everything that Mary wants. So the idea is, I just pray to Mary. She's closer to me. Uh, I feel a kinship with her. In other words, in her own words, Mary is my mediator. That's the exact word she used. Mary is my mediator. Mary goes before me, and she knows me. And I totally got where she's coming from. I totally get that idea. It totally makes sense to me. I say that that makes sense. I read this verse with her in 1 Timothy 2. And I had her read this verse by herself. And this is what the verse says. There's one mediator, we just read this, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And she uh, read that verse, and she says that's the first time she's ever read that. And I said, I said to her, you know, you don't really need Mary to be your mediator. Jesus is your mediator. He's become flesh. He's become human, a human being. And you don't need any other go-betweens but him. He's your mediator. And he's the man, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul puts that word, the man, the flesh and blood. And he's come so close to you. And he loves you so much that he ransomed his life for you. To bring you before God. He's all you need. There's a God of your father. There's a mediator, the Christ Jesus. And he's so close to you and he loves you. Go to him. Go to him. You know, one of the, um, the profound ideas of that is that it's just Christ alone. That's all we need. And God's heart is so filled with love for us that he gave Christ for us. And that incentivizes us to pray to him. That's why in Acts it says, Now, if you're outside of Christ, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's what Paul says in Acts. Everyone, every single person, this promises for everyone, who calls on God's name will be saved. It's an absolute promise. That if you're not a believer this morning, if you call on God's name this morning, you will be saved. It's a promise, absolutely. And for Christian people this morning, God gives you a promise. And he says that if you call on his name, there's a loving God, full of mercy. There's one mediator, Jesus Christ. And he promises and 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 he's waiting for you. Uh, All we need to do is ask. Jesus says in Matthew 7, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Sometimes there's a delay, but he says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on giving all kinds of prayers to God, supplications, petitions, prayers with thanksgiving. Keep on bringing those things to God. God is full of mercy, full of grace. There's power in the name of God. I keep on mentioning this verse in Mark 11. And it occurs uh, when Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's coming back to, to the temple. This is right before his death, his resurrection. He comes one last time to the temple in Jerusalem. And what does he see there in Mark 11? They turn the temple into this crazy marketplace. Black Friday sales, discounts, money changing, animals. And Jesus is outraged. He turns over the tables. And what does he say in verse 17? It's not written, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it into a den of robbers. Jesus says to them, you've, you've twisted what the church should be about. It's not about meeting people. It's not about 
activities and programs. It's a house of prayer. It's for everyone, all the nations, all different kinds of people. They're supposed to gather here and call upon the name of God. Isn't that what the church should be about? You know, as we close, I talked about this idea of the Korean church. And I love this history of the Korean church. In 1900, uh, the population of the Korean church was point, the, the percentage of Christians in Korea was 0.04 a hundred years ago. And it's rapidly, it's one of the most rapidly uh, countries that have increased in Christianity. How did that happen? Well, in 1903, there's a Canadian missionary named R.A. Hardy uh, who was doing missions in Korea. And he, become, he became convinced of his own sin, of the idolatry he had in, of ministry. And he confessed that before the whole congregation. And the congregation was shocked because they lived in a shame-based society. And they weren't used to their leaders confessing their sins. And it, it shocked them that a minister would confess his sins to the congregation. And it says uh, there was people began to weep and confess their own sins. In 1906, a Korean student by the name of Sunju Kill organized the first early morning prayer meeting at 4.30 in the morning. It's a practice that still continues today. And that further led to revivals. In 1907, it culminated in the city of Pyongyang, where 1,500 people gathered together. And a missionary, his name is William Blair. He's a Presbyterian missionary. He describes the scene. He says, the whole audience would break out into audible prayer. An effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together was something indescribable. Again, after another confession, they would break out into uncontrollable weeping, and we would all weep together. We couldn't help it. And the meeting went on to 2 a.m. with confession and weeping and prayer. We had all prayed for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it had come. For the rest of the week, he says, the evening services continued with that. And he says, after the week was over, he says, the Christians returned to their homes, taking that fire with them. It spread to practically every church. Schools canceled for days while students wept out their wrongdoings. Uh, we had our hearts torn again and again by the return of little articles and money that had been taken from us over the years. All through the city, people were going from house to house, confessing wrongs, returning stolen property, not only to Christians, but to non-Christians. A Chinese merchant was astounded to have a Christian walk in and pay him a large sum of money he had obtained unjustly years before. The whole city was stirred. Uh, when you study the history of, of revival in churches, including the one that happened here, in the city of Los Angeles, the common link that they had was a church in prayer. That the, the church moved as the church was drawn into prayer that was real, that was deep, that was profound, that was characterized by confession, by thanksgiving, by people weeping, by people desiring to see great things. This morning, are you feeling cold? Are you feeling dry? Are you feeling discouraged? I think it's going well. Uh, would you be drawn into prayer? Would you pray this morning that this church would be a house of prayer? That we would be so characterized by prayer that the world would see the glory of our King? Please join me in prayer. Father, this morning we want to confess our prayerlessness. I confess my own prayerlessness to you. 
Uh, we confess oh, how dry and rote and routine we've made prayer. Forgive me for my own prayerlessness, for my own dependence on my own gifts and not on your spirit. And our prayer this morning is that you would make us a house of prayer. Prayer our service would be a service where people can lift up their hands in prayer. Pray that this church would be a community that we could uh, confess our own sins to each other in prayer. Pray that this would be a, a community that's so tightly knit together in prayer. Uh, Father, I pray that you would start a movement of prayer in our lives. As we go home, I pray prayer would be alive. I pray in prayer we would meet you and see your glory as Moses is experienced that his face was shining because he met you in prayer. Pray that we would experience that same joy and communion in prayer. Make us a people of prayer. Make us a church of prayer. Make this a city of prayer. Pray that, Lord, your name would be exalted on high. We give you thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.